This is a test of the emergency crow's nest system. I'm an idiot. Yeah, hello y'all, uh, of all types and brands. This is Before the Crow's Nest. I'm Christopher. We're not very formal here. Uh, we're back with another episode of the Dark Matter Terrain Theory and the Quantum Moiré, which isn't really a phrase that was used much last time, maybe once, but I've brought it more to the forefront now. Um, you know, I had some other thoughts after I uploaded that one and wrote all that stuff, and they weren't actually new thoughts, they were just old thoughts, old, old thoughts, that I was like, God damn it, why didn't I even think to include that? Who knows? It's how fibromyalgia fog works, I guess. So, we're going through with an addendum today uh, with the Quantum Moiré and uh, the Dark Matter Terrain Theory. If you want to catch up, you might. There's some references back to the uh, first episode. Um, you might want to go do some catch up. Either way, this is kind of its own topic in and of itself, which is maybe why I didn't want to tackle it. Like, it was kind of in the back of my mind. I was like, but what about photons, dude? Um... But that's like kind of an old Mormon brain trick that's just kind of ingrained in me. I'm still getting rid of because like when you're giving priesthood blessings, if you're not really in the flow, sometimes you're like, is that you or God, bro? Um, but you just ignore it because you're trying to sort through everything else in your life at the time. Um, and you have faith. And right now, I guess, you know, I was going on the same faith values, uh, taking things at faith value, even science People are going to hate me for that one. Anyway, this section is called the addendum because it comes after all the other things I did. Uh, and it's called DMT and wave particle duality. Um, and yeah, we're just going to jump in. I'm just going to kind of read along what I wrote. There will be some visuals. I don't think there's any videos this time. Uh, so yeah, sit back, relax, and enjoy my mischief. I'm a bit personally miffed that I didn't think to include this the first time around uh, because I've been thinking about this for quite some time. I already said this part. Um, and, you know, it may be the answer to the entire proposal. Uh, for the sake of the case, let's step back to section three, DMT and the atom. I said that where Terrence McKenna and I disagreed is that he called the self-transforming elf machines syntax-driving light, whereas I called it fundamental matter or the atom, that which is and can make up everything just like the elf machines. However, after uploading the initial release of this paper and the subsequent video, I, I came across an old note on my phone from back when I tried LSD for the first time. I became very curious as to the experience of being able to see sound waves even though they seem to be coming from the singular source of the particulate eye of the speaker. The scene I was witnessing reminded me of the time I saw the infamous double-slit experiment in a physics class in college. It is already well established that there is a mysterious duality between the behavior of waves and that of particles. The infamous double-slit experiment continually demonstrates this, en this enigma. Let's have a quick overview of the experiment. And I think, yeah, we have got some visuals over on the other side here. Yes, 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 yes. So, if we take an atom gun particle cannon, uh, what have you, and cover one of the two slits in the double slit experiment, upon firing the atoms at the single opening, we begin to see what we'd expect, a single band of particles on the back wall directly across from the slit 
through which they traversed. Um, and there's a lot of little sciencey particularities here of why, like why there's a little scatter and how they're detected on, on the back wall. That's not really our concern. I'm basically presupposing that most people are familiar with the fundamental concept of how this um, experiment is played out in its various forms and scenarios. Um, quick overview. So through one slit, basic band like we uh, suppose we would see. Now, if we open the second slit again and fire the particle cannon, in lieu of seeing two bands appear on the back wall, we see an interference pattern as if the atoms traveled through like waves. So we can see here. And these slides, they're courtesy of uh, the Royal Institution's YouTube channel and uh, Professor Jim Al-Khalili's uh, lecture, um, how to, uh, no, 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 sorry. Uh, it's still, I, I didn't know it was a full lecture. I just thought it was kind of a clip, um, but I just discovered it was a full thing. I'm going to actually read because it seems like it's right up my alley. It's uh, how physics can revolutionize biology. Um, that's where I got these particular slides. I thought they were kind of the best ones out there that I could find that uh, demonstrated it most clearly. Um, and especially as we'll see as we move forward. Um, well, instead of attempting to send all of the atoms through both slits at once, what happens if we send them individually, one after another, so that they cannot interfere with one another? Observing the experiment, at first it appears as if the particles are arriving at random and the, on the back wall, as we can see here. But as time processes, we begin to see the same wave-inducing interference pattern present on the back wall. How could a single... I'm sorry for that silence bottom. People just listening. I'm just showing the visuals of kind of the process of the... Um, single particle firing over time. Okay. How could a single particle arriving at a localized point behave as if it knows it should contribute to a forthcoming interference pattern? To try to reason this, scientists set up a new way to observe the particle behavior. They wanted to see not just what they were firing through the two slits, but what was coming out the other side immediately after, well before it reaches the back wall. They set a detector at, uh, at the top slit and programmed it to beep every time an atom passed through. Upon individually firing the atoms, they found that the detector would beep half the time, assuming then that the other half were traveling through the lower slit. This showed that the atoms do indeed travel through either of the two slits individually, as seen here in figure 6. So we have the wall with the two slits, their detector right behind that wall, and they go through they're detected and we receive two bands on the back wall. Now this is very odd. How could simply placing a detector in this position alter the resulting outcome with the same procedural firing of the particle cannon? Well, let's see what happens if we leave the detector in its new position but we disable it completely, seeming to trick the particles into thinking we're detecting their travels. Uh, upon running the experiment again, firing each particle individually, with the detector in place but not detecting, the back wall once again puts an interference wave pattern on display. As we see here, so we've got the wall with the two slits, the detector, but it's disabled, and again we receive the interference pattern, whereas before when we were detecting, we received two bands. Mystery. 
And thus we have one of our fundamental mysteries. The mere act of detecting or observing the wave of the atom will determine whether or not it continues on as a particle or a wave. The creator of the popular YouTube channel, Veritasium, Derek Mueller, Muller, sorry, I actually don't know, um, once demonstrated this behavior by passing single photons through a double slit experiment set inside a photomultiplier tube. He plotted a graph of the distribution of photons counted as a function of position upon their arrival at the end of the photomultiplier tube. So here's that basic graph, uh, the photons counted on their arrival and the position they took across the spread of the back wall. Um, after individually firing, firing photons through the tube for just a moment, the graph, in the next figure we have, seemed reminiscent of the ah, seemed reminiscent of the results seen in the double slit experiment of figure three. So going back, figure three is where we started to see uh, just a random distribution on this back wall. Going back down here to the next figure, we kind of see a same thing on his graph of the amount of photons counted and their positional function across the back wall. You know, it kind of looks like a random distribution. Um, though when I first saw this, I was like, God, that's a, that's a cool way to represent this. Like I saw it here and I was like, oh, that's dope. Um, uh, anyway, I just, I'm just nerding out on graphs. Um, <laughs> however, after letting the experiment run for some time, the output of the graph receiving these individual interactions of the photons displayed a wave acting interference pattern as if the photons knew that in the end, they were to contribute to the overall pattern, that they should go with the flow, as it were. So here we can see that graph plotted out uh, what was uh, appearing to be a seemingly random distribution of uh, photons arriving and their functional position on the back wall uh, actually creates the same wave pattern with what they call, uh, you see here, troughs, if for those watching and not listening, the troughs of the waves phasing out the what would be the light bands uh up here on this that's a phase out and a phase in where the crests meet and the troughs cancel out it's phase in phase out so that's what we're seeing there on the same graph uh through a photomultiplier tube moving on i said a few times earlier and uh, for those only seeing this video earlier being earlier on in the same paper slash series sections somewhere sections one through eight i probably mentioned this uh that the subject of time was uh, for another time but it seems that time has come uh, at least in the form of introducing the notion of the concept uh, whether an atom or a photon it would appear that there are two constants in their behavior from what i see of these experiments whether it's uh the atom gun through the double slit uh, in this experiment with the detector or going through the photomultiplier tube and looking at distribution. Um, two constants. One, their distribution over time. And two, their need to do so discreetly because they seem to, over time, uh, while, whether they're being detected or not, uh, distribute distribute over time in a particular fashion. Uh, number two, their need to do so discreetly, maybe preferential. Do we, are we putting a value judgment of what's better at being a, a, a particle function of two bands or a, a wave pattern? Um, who knows? But I think they prefer the wave pattern and to propagate and process discreetly. And we'll 
see maybe why in the next uh, sections and subsections going on. Section, subsection one, I don't fucking know. Particle distribution over time. Uh, for quite some time now, I've been going around saying that time is memory. Everywhere I look, this seems evident to me. It is not always easy to parse out linguistically in the context of specific topics, but it is found in many folds. I didn't actually come to this conclusion through the use of a psychedelic substance, but rather through years of the psychedelic practice of Zazen meditation, or what I personally prefer to call Mushin meditation. Time would seem and appear to slip away on far too many occasions for me to think and see otherwise. Even though people often give me a strange and puzzled look or simply and completely disregard the comment, I haven't felt the need to describe it any other way, especially since having the notion confirmed not only through the use of LSD and DMT, but through the use of time itself. The clearest agreement I have found comes again from none other than Terence McKenna. <laughs> Geography is the visible condensation of time. It is literally uh, all that we have of time. It's somehow, when you have so much of it that you have to pile it up, you get geography. And uh, time is very much uh, what the psychedelic experience is about. It's about uh, you know, the time of your life, the time of the species, but also the time of the stones. And when I delineated us as being caught between geography and language, that's what I wanted to say. Geography is the most uh, condensed and uh, titanic form of time, and language is the most ethereal, etherealized and present form of time. And, you know, the trick is to realize that in the way that James Joyce must have realized it, because he understood, you know, that speech makes mountains, which is essentially what I'm saying. And I think this is a shamanic idea, the power of speech and the awareness of eternity. These are the two things. And I didn't notate this, but uh, connecting back to some other sections, I brought up some Mormonism. And I may, again, later on, I don't remember. I think I do. Uh, the thing, there's another thing here. It's speech makes mountains. Um, and I don't really think this is another Christian idea. I could be wrong, but there's a very popular phrase in Mormonism. Uh, that basically, I don't remember the exact reference. I know I can hear it in Cleon Skousen's voice, uh, but I don't remember where he got it. But it is essentially that you can move mountains with your priesthood if you want to. Um, and there's a lot of other things in there that actually can kind of mesh with some of the things we're talking about. Um, and maybe how to psychoscopically view a more fundamental world. But that's a different conversation. Uh, I just thought it was interesting in light of how this conversation is moving forward. So, uh, one answer as to why individual particles create a wave pattern is that a wave pattern is the visible condensation of particle behavior over time. There is probably a math formula in there for someone. Waves equal particles over time or something. I'm no mathematician. So it would appear that when you get so many particles that start piling up, you eventually have a wave pattern, the geography, life, and memory of light. 
To call upon previous terminology discussed in section 5, particles in the backwater's resting potential at the beginning of the experiment are made active. They individually enter the stream of the experiment. After some excitatory or inhibitory double-slit potential, the particles then enter watershed and go on to play and display as their mutually entailed wavicle of experience. <clears throat> and I say wavicle there because it's not yet determined. They enter the watershed to go on play and display, but as far as this conversation is now, are they going to be a wave or a particle? We'll see. Another explanation is that when an individual particle is sent toward the two slits, at some point it must somehow make the quantum decision to go through one or the other. Furthermore, it must have known one slit was closed the first go-around. This act of potential of discovering and choosing the slit of travel alone leaves behind a trace wave. This trace wave is much like Jacques Derrida's trace of language, an always-already-absent presence. If a wave pattern is the visible condensation of particles over time, then light and particle behavior is the most etherealized and present form of time. The sign of the wave pattern itself contains the opposing sign of the particle represented by individualized arrival on the back end of the experiment, but both mutually contain a very present and ethereal sign of the times in the form of trace waves. These trace waves travel through and interfere with the original particulate source as their always-already absent presence. This is something further down the scope that we have not yet seen inside the laboratory. Now, whether or not these ideas track for everyone taking the time to see the sign of their potential, this still hasn't taken into consideration how and why a particle and its trace waves would play the game of light any differently when observed. Section 2. Duality's Discrete Distribution Debacle Frankly, there appears to be a mystery at play because a mystery has been put into play. In other words, the structure and system of the experiment itself is faulty. In late 2021, while doing some research for a previous essay meant for both Mormons and ex-Mormons alike entitled The Epistle of Christopher, I came across a commentary regarding the distinction placed between the three types of change as presented in the I Ching, or the Book of Changes. As a former Mormon, this commentary intrigued me because in Mormonism there is a phrase, God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and it comes from a verse straight out of the Book of Mormon. For do we not read that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and in him there is no variableness, neither shadow of changing? This great treatise, or great commentary, I came upon in the I Ching discusses non-change, and in many ways this non-change reminded me of the unchanging Mormon God I have always known deeply. This is the excerpt. <laughs> uh, Non-change is the background, as it were, against which change is made possible. For in regard to any change, there must be some fixed point to which the change can be referred. Otherwise, there can be no definite order and everything is dissolved in chaotic movement. 
This point of reference must be established, and this always requires a choice and a decision. It makes possible a system of coordinates into which everything else can be fitted. Consequently, at the beginning of the world, as at the beginning of thought, there is the decision, the fixing point of reference. Theoretically, any point of reference is possible, but experience teaches that at the dawn of consciousness one stands already enclosed within a definite, prepotent system of relationships. The problem then is to choose one's point of reference so that it, so that it coincides with the point of reference for cosmic events. For only then can the world created by one's decision escape being dashed to pieces against a prepotent systems of relationships, with which it would otherwise come into conflict. The particles in the experiment stand already enclosed within a definite prepotent system of relationships. They know with certainty their fixed point of reference at the front end of the photomultiplier tube or the particle cannon, and this is precisely how they escape being dashed to pieces, as they use this starting coordinate to travel effortlessly and dynamically through the system. What do I mean by dashed to pieces? Well, for one, I mean that the question of whether or not the particles split themselves in half before tra traveling through the slits can be put to rest. This is not the case. For another, I mean that with this reference point, they don't escape being dashed to pieces, but rather they escape becoming two dashed pieces of the experiment. Our attempts to observe the way they behave in this prepotent system of experimental relations puts a poorly fixed, indefinite, and newly interfering point of reference in place for the particle to calculate into the experience so that it may again know for itself how to most effortlessly move forward without being permanently dashed into two dashed pieces, being forced, coerced, into conforming to the pattern of the system. They may be able to move beyond this odd new reference point, which would seem to inevitably lead to their two-dashed conformity, but our hubris interferes as well, as we put up a wall at the end of the system. We can bring in time again as a factor in all of this. Honestly, probably the clearest and best description I have ever heard of time comes from Andrew Bird, off of his fourth solo album, Armchair Apocrypha. He elegantly states from a cosmonautic dream, Time is a crooked bow. In time you need to learn to love the ebb just like the flow. Waves are particles over time, and a point of reference in the non-changing system helps stack its memory. Giving it an endpoint places its memory in the historical record. Those particles are done. They are happy to flow on, even in the ebb of a two-dashed interference, but must that be their demise? Time as a crooked bow illustrates what the Book of Changes means by non-change in a prepotent system. The bow is the system in which the particle arrow is placed, the string its fixed point of reference, the arrow rest its coordinates. The arrow of time was drawn conjoined with the string as it was pulled back and then released from that fixed point in the past, it sent forth the coordinated stream of time cutting through space like an arrow. Its firing caused the string to rebound, sending out the arrow of time's trace waves. 
we are among these trace waves, which trace waves in turn are reconceived as individualized arrows of human experience with fixed points of motherly and sociocultural reference. The individualized strings of our referential existence were pulled back the, by the excitatory and active potential of conception only to rebound back through our lives as the trace waves of our genetic and conceptual experience. We and our personalized trace waves are set out in this prepotent system of relationships to interfere in the patterns of, or find ourselves in phase with, any and all of the other individualized human arrows and their individualized enigmatic trace waves. Crests with crests and troughs with troughs behave exactly as they intend. This means that there actually is no interference pattern, no refraction, no phasing in and out. There is only the unmediated, non-changing, prepotent field and its corresponding axis of time. The cosmological axis of evil? Ooh, who knows? Different conversation. Moving on. We are human particle arrows. We have particulate neurotransmission being sent out to participate in the wave of our brain activity. We are human particle arrows because we are individual, and we are trace waves because together we are the wave pattern of life. Much like how, until you have the requisite amount and type of particles mixed and then bundled together, you do not have water. You will not have the wave pattern until you have enough water. Much like how, until you have the requisite amount of complementary and combinatory knowledge in the room, you do not have science. This all, too, putting to rest the great debate between free will and determinism. There is a functional determinism at play. Bound and determined by the prepotent systems of relationships in which we find ourselves, commingled with emergent points of reference to be utilized as bearings and coordinates. Is it more functional to move forward as a band of two dashes or as a wave pattern? If Big Brother is in place in the system, then conformity to the system it is, I guess. But as soon as he's not looking, individually coalesced waves freely proliferate into the broader pattern in participation with the human experience. With all this in mind, we may take a slightly different look at that passage out of the Book of Changes. Consequently, at the beginning of the experiment, as at the beginning of theory, there is the hypothesis, the fixing point of reference. Theoretically, any point of reference is possible, but experience teaches that at the dawn of experimentation, one stands already enclosed within a definite, prepotent system of relationships. The problem, then, is to choose one's hypothetical point of reference so that it coincides with the point of reference for theoretical events. For only then can the experiment created by one's functionally determined decision escape being two dashed pieces against a prepotent system of relationships with which it would otherwise wave into conflict. The double-slit experiment is an existential and scientific dread end which requires a respectful farewell as an individualized point of reference in the wave of time unraveling our experience from thread to thread. Section 2, subsection 1, The Problem of the Observer. 
These days, there's increasing debate and discussion surrounding the best methods of personal empowerment, divining individual worth, and how and who we should culturally cancel in the name of equality in order that we may cultivate a disposition and society of maximum well-being. It is not uncommon for many involved in this new age schmage, especially in the West, to take on a form of guided meditation, or what I truly prefer to call misguided meditation. Within this misguided meditation method, there is much talk of the observer, or the one who looks, the one who is behind all this unceasing thought chatter drumming up your anxieties, fears, loves, hates, and desires. You will often hear guides say something along the lines of, look for the one who is looking, or look for the one who thinks. However, there are a number of problems here. First, and it has seemed pretty clear to me for many years now that this observer, the one who looks, is itself another thought no matter when and where it is discovered. Second, this illusory and seemingly found observer-thinker-looker often becomes the catalyst for operating in a misunderstood world freely remiss of free will. Third, these phrases are koans. In Western words, this means that they are irreducible phrases meant to stimulate and focus thought to the point of a frustrated and confused thoughtless revelation of mutual nothingness with the entire field of experience. Or we could just say it's a koan. In essence, calling upon D.E. Harding's headless story from the end of section 8 to look for the looker is not to look at the you you've come to cultivate and know since your birth, finding that it is a fabrication lacking the will to operate in this prepotent system, but rather it is to look and see that where there should be someone looking out of a head with two eyes, there is instead, always and only, the world at large in a beautifully singular view. Another wonderful and obscure example of this understanding comes from a peculiar poetic excerpt by Vladimir Nobokov. In his poetic novel Pale Fire, his character John Shade uses the word irrejule. There have been a handful of commentaries on the use and concoction of this word, and while they do illustrate some necessary imagery, I believe they are missing their twin imagery. The excerpt this word arises from reads, My picture book was at an early age, the painted parchment papering our cage. Mauve rings around the moon, blood orange sun, twinned iris, and that rare phenomenon, the irrejule, when, beautiful and strange, in a bright sky above a mountain range, one opal cloudlet in an oval form reflects the rainbow of a thunderstorm, which in a distant valley has been staged, for we are most artistically caged. I break the word into two parts, I ride and the suffix yule. I rides is an alternative plural for the word irises. The suffix yule means to say small or little. The irrejule is a blending into a small portion, the irises you have for viewing, and the third eye of your borderless headless field of view into a twinned iris of newly unmediated perspectives. When one is able to see coalescing eye-rides of a mauve-ringed moon and a blood-orange sun with the eye of the non-beholder and the opal cloud, 
one tastes the golden paste of life's greatest secret. To see an iridescent cloudlet in an opal form reflecting the rainbow of a thunderstorm is to see not just the bright sky above a mountain range, but the bright eye of life within, prearranged. The iridescent opal form is the form of the entire field of the headless experience. The entire world is contained both within you and without you, yet even still again within the iridescent opal cloudlet. Indeed, this intrinsic state of view is being staged in a valley somewhere poorly, such as on this paper or in this video from the center of the Salt Lake Valley, for I am most artistically caged. Certainly, this intrinsic state of view is being staged in a laboratory somewhere, perhaps not so poorly, yet out of scope, scientifically caged. What photons do is what neurons do, which is a beautiful and strange irritual of neurons doing what photons do. It is clear that Alan Watts understood this observant principle as well, reciting his delightfully humorous Zenrin poem, there once was a boy who said, though, it seems that I know that I know. What I'd like to see is the eye that knows me when I know that I know that I know. The mere act of observing the observer, a self-limiting principle of self-acknowledgement, puts in place a poorly fixed point of reference of determined non-functionality, therefore, determining whether or not one continues on as a particular observed observer or a wave of human experience. In this sense, the observer of that which leaves the particle cannon or photomultiplier is limited and unfocused in both perspective and scope. Fully encompassing this quantum entanglement, the spooky action at a subjectively relative distance, our supratomic light of life is entailed in its meditative neural action. The photo-firing of individual neurotransmissions functionally determines its processing by flowing unmediated through a prepotent system of neural and quantum relationships. This flow, of course, coalescing into various brainwaves of activity. It is only when one attempts to observe this light of thought and its alleged enigmatic ever-present subconscious thinker that the system goes full tilt into the illusion. Like photons in a photomultiplier tube, we individually contribute to the overall pattern, going with the flow, as it were. The photon is a massless syntax-driving light of a more fine and pure supratomic matter, and it takes a particular perspective in order to discern and comprehend its beautifully enveloping and enigmatic nature. So that's that, I guess. Those are all with the first video and now this video with the, the addendum. Uh, those are, I guess, all my introductory thoughts on the matter of uh, dimethyltryptamine being a psychoscope for the quantum. Um, a psychoscope being, you know, like a psychological a telescope or microscope for viewing alternate uh, aspects of the scientific world, I guess. Or, you know, just the quantum moiré, like I have here. Moiré, that's, I kind of worked worked my way towards that from the unworked wood. It's a Zen thing, the uh, 
uh, uncarved block, the unbleached silk, the fabric and thread of the universe. This is the quantum moiré, DMT, dimethyltryptamine, the dark matter terrain. Uh, yeah, I think there needs to be some coalescing conversations here. I don't know, guys. I'm really informal about all this stuff, and I'm ready to go. I'm tired. I need some medicine. It's right there. Hit me up if you're interested. If you've got a lab and you want... I've got ideas, Kay. Hit me up. <laughs> anyway, have a good one.